chapter 10. Meet Peter. One of Jesus' best friends and devoted disciples was a guy named Peter. Peter was one of the leaders of the early church and a great example of how an imperfect person can still follow Jesus. During the Last Supper, the two of them had an interesting conversation, John 13. It started after Jesus mentioned how one of the disciples would betray him, but they had yet to find out who it would be. Peter heard Jesus mention this betrayal, and the conversation went more or less something like this. Peter said, Well, it's not me. I love you, and I would never betray you. I will die for you. To which Jesus replied, Listen, buddy, I appreciate all of that, but you are going to deny knowing me three times before the rooster crows and the sun comes up. I never do that. All right, I'm just giving you a heads up. After dinner, Jesus and the disciples went into the Garden of Gethsemane. Shortly after, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, who informed the authorities of Jesus' whereabouts, and Jesus was arrested. Enraged, Peter pulled out a sword and cut an ear off a servant of a high priest in attendance of Jesus' arrest. Jesus was like, calm down, Peter, and Jesus miraculously put the ear back on the servant before being taken to trial. During his trial, Jesus spent hours before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem. Jesus was beaten, mocked, then taken to the cross, where a crown made of thorns was placed on his head. All the while, the disciples were freaking out because the authorities were going to kill Jesus. As that was happening, Peter sat around a fire in a different part of the city. Someone recognized him, and their exchange in modern language went as follows. Hey, aren't you one of the disciples? What's a disciple? Peter played dumb. I don't know what you're talking about. You're sure you're not a disciple? Nope, not me. That was denial number one. Then a little girl approached Peter, and she said, I know you. You're one of the disciples. Peter called her a foolish child and again denied being a disciple. Mark that denial number two. Then yet another person said, Hey, you are from Galilee. I can tell by your accent. You are one of the disciples. The Bible says Peter called a curse down, which is basically our way of saying, I swear I don't know who you are talking about. I am not one of the disciples. And there's denial number three. Can you guess what happened next? That's right, the rooster crowed. Peter had denied Jesus three times in one night, just as Jesus said he would. Do you love me? A few days after the resurrection, the disciples went fishing on a boat. When they returned to shore, much to their surprise, Jesus had made them breakfast. After breakfast, Peter and Jesus had an interesting one-on-one -on -one conversation. Peter, of course, was relieved and thrilled Jesus had risen from the dead, but in the back of his mind, he thought, yep, I totally blew it. I got caught up in the moment, and I choked. Jesus knew how Peter was feeling, so he addressed Peter's denial. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? John 21, 15. In other words, do you love me more than your business? More than fishing? More than other people? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Or more plainly, he was saying, if you love me, then do what I would do. Disciple people and teach them my heart and my mind. Show people all about me. Then Jesus asked Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep, John 21, 16. I'll translate again. Defend, protect, and serve those whom I love. Live your life for them. 
And then a third time, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? In other words, are you deeply devoted to me? Are you 100% all in on this, Peter? The Bible reads, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him for the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you, John 21, 17. If we could hear Peter's thoughts, I'm willing to bet we'd have heard him thinking, read my mind, Lord, you know my heart. I blew it and I'm sick about it. I love you with the deepest affection. You are more than a friend to me. You are a brother and I am devoted to you. When I saw you walking in Jerusalem, I knew I was looking at the Son of God. When I watched you suffer, I saw the depth of your love. You rose from the dead. You are my Savior. You know all things, and you know I love you. Peter's example. Verse 17 continues. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me, John 21, 17 and 18. After having denied him three times, Jesus warned Peter that to love him and follow him would cost Peter his life, and it did. Peter was crucified because he refused to quit teaching that Jesus is God. Church history tells us he was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Peter's example is what it means to follow Jesus. It means you're willing to put everything including your life on the table. Jesus loved and lived for his sheep and his lambs, so anyone who goes all in and recognizes him as the Son of God and the risen Lord is also motivated to love who he loves and live for him. If you are investigating the claims of Jesus and trying to decide if you want to sign up for this Christian thing, that's great. If you recently confessed Jesus as Lord, or even if you've been a Christian for a while, the verses we just discussed in John 21 define what it means to follow Jesus. Do you have a deep affection? Do you have a total devotion to love who he loves and live for what he lives for? Are you willing to give your life for Jesus? If yes, then Jesus says, follow me. Who Jesus loves and lives for. A follower of Jesus is not necessarily your stereotypical churchgoer, nor is it someone who simply cleans up his or her life. They don't toss out their cigarettes, alcohol, tobacco, and resign as Captain F-bomb and call it a day. They invest in knowing Jesus personally, they learn who he loves and what he lives for, and they emulate those same passions in their own life. So who does Jesus love and what does he live for? Those are fair questions. Thankfully, the Bible makes both of these things pretty clear. Specifically, Jesus said he loved three things. The first is his Father God. Jesus would say, I love him and he loves me. I am one with him. The second thing Jesus loves is his church. The Bible uses a lot of metaphors for the church, some of which include the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and the called out ones, which is what the word church or ecclesia in Latin means. Christ's followers are the church, and the Bible says Jesus has a deep affection for us. Jesus started the church, he invented the church, and the church operates the way that it does because the Bible tells us to do it that way. We didn't make up our own systems and rules. Jesus designed them. And if you are a part of his church, he has a deep affection for you. The third thing Jesus loves is the world. John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, and it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
When Jesus says he loves the world, he means the unforgiven people, the lost people, John 10.10, or those who do not yet know that he is the Son of God. One of the things Jesus said he came to do was to seek and save the lost. He loves people who do not yet know him. Like he told Peter, he loves his sheep and his lambs. He loves lost people. Now what does Jesus live for? It's the same list, his father, his church, and the world. The primary purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to do his father's will, to birth the church and redeem us of our sins. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus was obedient even to his death on the cross because it was his father's will. Jesus also lived for the church. He wanted to empower and expand the church. So when Jesus asked Peter if he was totally devoted and totally affectionate, he asked because he wanted Peter to know it would require his life. Peter had to be willing to give up his life to glorify God, further Jesus, cause the church, and reach the lost. Are you in on that too? Let's talk about what that takes to love and live like Jesus. Do not conform. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, 1 Peter 1.14. When I thought about whether I was a follower of Jesus or whether I even wanted to be, I had to consider the ramifications of such a commitment. After all, if all of what Jesus said is true, that might mess with my convictions and my priorities in big ways. It felt like a lot to figure out. Fortunately, Peter explained the ramifications of such a commitment in a couple of letters that are now part of the Bible and aptly named 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He wrote these letters to people who wanted to be Christ followers or those who were considering it, and he explained the ramifications of what it means to follow Jesus. Let's dig into 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter wrote, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming, verse 13. Or more simply, you need to know full and well what you are getting yourself into or have already gotten into, and then you need to keep your eyes on the prize, Jesus Christ. Then Peter really digs into what to expect and what being a Christ follower looks like. He wrote, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, 1 Peter 1.14. Let's talk about the word ignorance in that scripture. According to Peter, I lived in ignorance before I knew about Jesus. I was lost, and this is true of everyone. I was lost because there was a time when I literally did not know Jesus. I did not recognize him as the Son of God. I did not know he was God or that he laid down his life by his own authority. The Bible calls that ignorance. As for the part of 1 Peter 1.14 about evil desires, I think we can all come up with plenty examples of evil desires. Let's use the example of materialism, which is basically a dedication of one's life to the pursuit of acquiring material things. Jesus would warn us to guard against this desire. In Luke 12.15, Jesus said, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This desire is not limited to our culture today. This is an issue of the human condition. Many of us conform to this desire and define our lives as a pursuit of stuff. Our culture teaches us to be materialistic. We do our best to graduate from high school. Why? So we can go to college. Why? So we can attend graduate school. Why? So we can secure good jobs. Why? So we can make good money. Why? So we can live the way we want to live and feed our desire for more things. 
obviously there are plenty of other human desires besides greed and materialism, but what Peter was saying was that before we knew Jesus, these desires were the only kinds of options we knew were even on the table. We didn't know we could give our lives to something else. But Peter was also telling his audience in us that when we decide to follow Jesus, we no longer conform to those desires. We choose not to let those desires define and direct our lives anymore. Be holy. Be holy because I am holy, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. After explaining that we should not conform to the ways in which we loved and lived before knowing Jesus, Peter goes on in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 to tell us to be holy because the one who called us Jesus is holy. Therefore, as Christ's followers, we are to be defined by holiness, being holy in everything we do and say and think. Because I am no longer ignorant of Jesus, and I want to be like him, I choose to pursue holiness. Something is holy when it is set apart for God's use and God's purpose. Jesus was holy. He was set apart for the Father's use and the Father's purpose. God used Jesus to go to earth, be born of a virgin, and lead a life for God's purpose, which was to provide a means of salvation for all people. We often think of holiness in a subtraction model. I don't do this or that because I want to be holy. You can plug in any human desires into this distorted equation. I want to be holy, so I stopped sleeping around. I want to be holy, so I did not buy that brand new car. This model of subtractive thinking leads to self-righteousness and legalism, which is the practice of keeping and strictly following rules for the sake of meriting a righteous standing with God. The problem with this line of thinking is it's built on self-righteousness, not on what God has already done for us. Holiness is not a subtraction idea, it's a conscious decision to make better choices. Instead of thinking of my body as my own with sexual impulses in need of satisfaction, I am going to treat my body as holy. My body is now set apart for God's use and God's purpose. Our sexual impulses were designed by God to express love, and love is patient, kind, and not selfish, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. In romantic relationships, God wants us to use our bodies to bring purity into the relationship. We are to reserve our sexual drives for marriage. Again, it's not that sex is bad or meant to be removed from our lives. Sex is meant to be expressed in love and reserved for our spouses. Likewise, I let God tell me where to go and what to do with my body. If God wants me to go to Africa and serve as a missionary, I'm there. I place my body wherever he wants me to be, and I give myself to his purpose to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is being holy. Live like a foreigner. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. 1 Peter 1.17 1 Peter not only imparts wisdom on how we are to be, but it also shares how we are to spend our time. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, 1 Peter 1.17. If we accept Jesus as God, no longer conform and pursue holiness, we are to also live out our time our lives as foreigners in reverent fear. The concept of a foreigner is fascinating. Jesus lived as a foreigner. He spent time here on earth, but it was never his permanent home. He set himself apart to be used for God and God's purpose while he walked this planet, but he knew he would return home to his father. 
Let's talk about this idea of what a foreigner is because it's important. A foreigner is a person who lives outside the culture to which they consider home. I am a foreigner if I live within a culture that I do not claim as my own. The culture may have a different set of values than what I am used to or what I prefer. As a Christ follower who is to pursue holiness, I look at the culture I live in and think, this culture is weird. The culture I live in values sex, materialism, and power, but I value sex within marriage as a oneness and picture of Christ. I do not value and live for wealth like they do. Whereas they want to influence by lording over others, I want to influence by serving overs. I was talking to my sister Sharon about a vacation to Europe that she and her husband Eric took. She was telling me all about it and how fun it was, and she said something funny. She said they went to take a train, but the workers were on strike, so the trains weren't running. She said, we tried to rent a car, but that didn't work, so we had to hire a taxi. It was frustrating because everybody was speaking a foreign language, and I had no clue what was going on. I laughed at her and asked, did you say they were speaking a foreign language? Right, she said. No, I said, German people are supposed to speak the German language in Germany. You're the foreigner. She laughed and then hit me on the arm, which pretty much defines our relationship over the years. I'm always the little brother who teases her. German people speaking German in Germany is not foreign. My sister was the foreigner, and when you're a foreigner, you are inevitably going to stick out like a sore thumb because you don't understand the culture, you don't know the language, and you don't share the same values. Here is where Peter's teaching gets tricky. There is nothing wrong or abnormal about our culture. If I fit into it, that means I am out of step with Christ. Christ's followers are weird, and it's not because we have bad hair or wear terrible t-shirts or listen to strange music. We are bound to be weird because we are not motivated by earthly stuff. We are heavenly minded. We care about the eternal. I love playing sports, but I would rather have good sportsmanship than be a braggadocious jerk every time I score a goal. I am grateful to be doing well financially, but I care more about the treasures I'm laying up in heaven. Peter finished his thoughts about living like a foreigner by saying, For you know it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. Life is not about perishable or earthly things. It is not about your church attendance or the size of your check. It's not about who does and does not smoke, drink, or chew tobacco. You were redeemed from an empty way of life, a life defined by evil desires to focus on Christ. It no longer matters how many people you have slept with, how important you are to your company, or how much money you have in the bank. It no longer matters if you were the most popular kid in high school, because that went away the minute you got your diploma, right? Those are empty ways of life, and you live differently like a foreigner as a follower of Jesus. Like Peter wrote, it was the precious blood of Christ that redeemed you. Peter was there when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and everybody wondered who he was, but Peter decided in his heart that Jesus was the Son of God. Peter was there when Jesus was falsely accused. He knows Jesus was without blemish or defect because Peter lived with him. He knew Jesus was never selfish or acted on his sexual desires. Jesus' mother raised him, and Jesus' brother James grew up with him. They were there when Jesus died and when he rose again, and they both agreed with Peter that Jesus was the Son of God. 
When you consider what it takes to live like a foreigner, it can feel like a heavy burden, right? It's weighty because the ramifications of becoming a Christ follower are massive. You cannot take everything Peter wrote and think, fine, I'll go to church twice a month and put some money in the basket in December to get my tax refund. These things don't define you as a Christ follower because as a foreigner, you are different. You live like Jesus did, and he was committed to every aspect of his Father's will. I am different because I am a Christ follower. I live differently and everything in my life is defined and directed differently. This is what it means to be a Christian. We have to rectify these implications in our own lives. Personally, I know my life was given to me by God who loves me and the purpose of my life is to bring him glory. I love who Christ loves and I live for the church. I'm willing to die for the cause of Christ. I will use my gifts and bring my tithes to the warehouse of God so they can be invested into the kingdom. Go all in. God did not give the church to the church alone. He gave the church to the world. What does it mean to be a missionary and not a consumer in our own culture? What does it mean to love and live for the lost? What does it mean to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Jesus asked Peter, are you signing up for this? Peter said, I'm all in. I encourage you to be still. Make sure your phone is on silent and just chill for a minute. Give yourself a little bit of headspace and run these questions into the ground. Do I want to follow Christ? Do I want to love who he loves and live for what he lives? Is holiness something I want? Am I a foreigner? Those are personal questions, so I'm asking you to be with God for a little bit. Ask him to help you answer those things in your own mind and heart so you can make your own decisions. Think it through. Ask yourself if you believe Jesus is the Son of God. Ask yourself if he loves you. Ask yourself if you believe he got up from the dead. And then ask yourself if you want to follow him. Jesus helps us in these still moments. Maybe you've already answered these questions and want to double down on a decision you've already made. Or maybe you're feeling a renewed passion because it's easy for us to grow numb and distant. The Lord knows regardless, which is why we are not saved by perfection. We are saved by grace. Maybe you want to lock in your answer to these questions for the first time. Whatever it is, I pray the Lord would change you, pursue you, and empower you to know Him so that we can love whom He loves and live for what He lives for. Headspace. Connect with God. Choosing to be a follower of Jesus does not mean following Him perfectly. If we could perfectly follow Christ, then we would have no need for him to save us from our sins. We would simply have to figure out the rules, get our act together, and obey them. But because none of us has the ability to be perfect, Jesus came to pay a price that he did not owe for those of us who owe a price we cannot pay. Every Christ follower in one way or another is like Peter, we have the best of intentions and the worst execution. But that's why the grace of God is so important to us. God loves us, he wants us to live for him and follow him, but he knows that we are going to need his help and his direction every step of the way. Maybe think for a few minutes about ways that you have intended to do what's right or intended to follow your conscience of a certain way, but found yourself failing like Peter. And when you think of that example, think of how wonderful it is that there's a God who chooses to love you and help you despite your ability to perfectly perform for him. Connect with others. 
Our human frailty is also the basis of forgiveness between us and other people. When I realize how deeply God has forgiven me, even though I don't serve Him perfectly, it motivates, reminds, and helps me to be willing to forgive people who fail and offend me. Is there anyone in your life that you could forgive and extend the same grace and mercy that Christ has extended to you? What does this mean for you? Ultimately, what this means for you is that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's not that God wants us to do a certain set of actions or to keep a strict set of rules. Rather, it's that he wants us to receive his love and his forgiveness. Have you recognized your need for forgiveness, and have you received the love and mercy that Jesus wants to offer you?